You're listening to Shit Adults Never Taught Us, the podcast where we talk shit in a good way. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of season two. Today, I have Brienne Davis, and she wrote an incredible book called The Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. Let me tell you, this book gets into a lot of stuff. So it's broken up into a couple of different sections. She gets into her past, her family history, but I say it at the end of this episode and I really mean it. It doesn't have to be a love or sex addict in your life or in yourself that makes you resonate with her so much. There is something about her book that can connect to everybody. There are lessons that she's learned. There are things she's gone through that are so relatable. And I I highly recommend this book for anybody who is just, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in their relationships or patterns that they're seeing in their love life. So let's dig in a little bit with Brienne. Hi, Brienne. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. We have so much to dive into today. And it's almost like too much that I don't know where to begin. So I want to give you the reins on where to begin. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and then how the book came to be? Yeah, my background is in the entertainment business. I've literally been in the entertainment business for 25 years. I'm like one of those actors that's been in everything, but you have no idea who I am. So I call myself, you know, the typical working actor. I make a living doing it. I love what I do, you know, but it's definitely not like... I don't hang my hat on it. I don't hang my self-worth on it. So I've been in Lucifer, Six on History, Jarhead, pretty much any show you can think of, any crime show. I've (laughs) I've murdered people. I've I've been a white supremacist before. I've literally done everything. And yeah, yeah. and I was this annoying bubble girl for Dasani for three years, which was really fun. So fun. I got, I, I put it in the book. I put it, there's this guy that I was out flying to Paris and he was like, wait, are you that annoying bubble girl? And I was like, yes. And he, and he's like, why are you in coach sitting in coach? I'm like, like because, it's because water. yeah, <laughs> it's a water. It's a commercial. Do you see me on a billboard? Like, come on, man. Like you're like, and you don't know my name. You just called me the bubble girl. Bubble That's girl. why I'm exactly. in coach. <laughs> He's like with those famous people at a part of me. He's like, oh, I'm famous as the bubble girl. But no, anyways, I'm from Atlanta. So I've been working and, you know, I really hit my stride in my self-worth a couple years ago. I'm in recovery for sex and love addiction. I have 12 years of recovery in, in 12 steps for sex and love. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was in a meeting getting my 10-year chip. And that was the moment I saw all these young people come in, you know, struggling for connection, communication, and being an actor and, you know, and being recognizable, but not like an A-list celebrity. It allowed me to then, you know what, I'm going to speak out about this addiction, not in a way where it's ego, in a way where it's I'm giving back. So I wrote an article for HuffPost a couple of years ago, coming out pretty much saying, hey, I'm a female. I'm in a recovery for sex and love addiction. I'm in a healthy relationship now. I got through this addiction to people that I use people to give me my self-worth. I use attention, validation, flirting, intriguing. I use my sex as sexuality, as a currency, which is meaning, you know, flirting, intriguing, acting like I like somebody when I didn't, you know, 
being sexual when I really didn't want to, but I was trying to manipulate and control. Even people that are married can use their sexuality as a currency. So anyways, the point is I wrote this article and the morning it came out, 9 a.m., I was like, oh my God, did I just ruin my career? What am I doing? I know I want to change the narrative what a sex and love addict is because it's all men cheating on their wives, going to sex rehab, Tiger Woods, that whole scenario. And I was just tired of it. And seeing all these young kids struggling for connection. So that morning I was like, I ruined my life. My life is over. And then two hours later, nothing happened. And it was just like such a humbling experience where I was like, lady, come on. You're a worker among workers. You are just like this small on the planet. Nobody cares. Get over yourself. But here's what happened the week afterwards, I got hundreds and hundreds of emails and DMs and messages saying, oh my God, that's how I am. I didn't know what's wrong with me. My mom used to be like that. My dad was like that. My brother, blah, 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 whoever. And I just saw there was this huge community that was like, thank you so much. So that was the start of it. You know, writing the book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. I didn't write it for me. I actually wrote it to help other people. And doing my podcast, Secret Life Podcast, helping others with their shame and secrets. So it's been that whole process the last two years of living my full truth, really. Because when I wrote that article and had that anxiety, a teeny, teeny little part of me was like, oh my God, after 10 years of recovery, I still hold a little shame. I didn't realize because I've done so much work on myself. I'm talking eight years of therapy twice a week working the 12 steps, speaking all over the world. I didn't think I had, was carrying that shame because everybody around me knew I was a sex and love addict in recovery and my community so amazing. But then I would go on set and no one would know, you know? So I definitely wasn't living my full truth, but I thought that's my private life. No one on set needs to know I'm a sex and love addict. What I go on and go, Hey guys, I'm a sex and love addict. And they're all like, Oh, does she want to sleep with me? Blah, blah, blah. Like that right. narrative, you know? Oh, she's a whore. Oh, she's just, you know, using her looks, whatever you want to call me that people try to say, but it's like, no, I have a hole inside my soul and I use other people to fill it. Just like alcoholics use alcohol to give them their worth and their, you know, gusto, I snort and drink people. Like people give me like life, flirting, a high attention, you know? Here's the thing that sparks my intrigue from what you just said is a lot of people think of sex addiction, like they think of drinking, like they think of, you know, alcoholics. It can be a trauma response for a lot of people. Love addiction is something I think a lot of people don't know about. And you just described the characteristics of it perfectly, but it shows up differently in a lot of different people, right? Yeah. So, oh, every person is different. Exactly. For men and women, they may experience it differently. And so I want to flip it a little bit back. Okay. What would it look like if you were in a relationship? with a love addict or I think you would know if you were in a relationship with a sex addict, but if you were in a relationship with a love addict, what would that look like? What would, how would they treat you? Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say just so I love the way you put this question because you could be in a relationship with a sex addict and actually not know it. Oh. So let me just clear that up real quick. For okay. You. And for anybody listening, 
a sex addict can look like me, someone that doesn't wear sexy clothes, acts like a, you know, quote unquote, puts her promiscuous, never had a one night stand, haven't had many sexual partners for my age. I don't go around sleeping with everybody. But what I did is I use my sexuality as a currency as to get what I wanted. So that would be going on a date with someone and kissing them when I actually didn't want to. And I just wanted dinner that night. I'm just, that's an example of what I did in my early twenties when I had no money, you know, living in Hollywood, eating ramen in a studio apartment, you know, before I got jarhead. So it's like, that makes me a sex addict. So it's not just, you know, being addicted to porn. I mean, I even masturbation, it's when you have a feeling and you can't Mm -hmm. feel it, you then go masturbate to get out of that feeling. So it's very different. So you can be with a sex addict and not know it. And then it's the cheating, the going from relationship to relationship, being addicted, like I said, to porn, you know, sleeping one night stands left and right. So that's the, what we do know. So the love addiction side is the more difficult side to pinpoint. It's being addicted to fantasy, romance, having that soulmate somewhere out there in the world that's going to complete you, you know, going from relationship to relationship to relationship, thinking that they are not perfect for you when there is no perfect person. Flirting, intriguing, and intriguing people. Some people don't know what that means. That means where it's like flirting that's amplified. So intriguing is giving your number out when you're actually not available. You know, touching somebody when it's totally inappropriate and you're in a relationship, but it's just an mm-hmm. innocent touch. I'm just a yeah. flirt. That's my personality. It's things like Interesting. that. And they call, you know, you can be addicted to just one person and be a love addict. And we call oh, them, yeah. yeah, we call them qualifiers. So they're your qualifier. So you can be in a toxic relationship with a love addict, love avoidant, push pull of a relationship. And that person can bring you to your knees where you then realize you've always been going for the unavailable person. It's just amplified. Right. You, once you get the unavailable person, then you go for the next unavailable person. Yes. The next, and it's, you're chasing something. Yeah. You're chasing that high. You're chasing that worth and validation because underneath all that stuff I just said about sex addicts, love addicts, sex and love addicts. And then there's this other side that nobody talks about. It's sexual anorexia. So you've been hurt. Say you've been hurt by someone or you're scared of intimacy and you shut down sexually and you go years without being in a relationship. Like you, you talk about your book and my book I wrote about not, there is no perfect person. And stop looking for the perfect person because it's going to be the perfect person for you. You will connect in a way that you didn't connect with another person. When you talk about the sexual anorexia or love anorexia, Mm -hmm. I call it love fatigue, where you feel exhausted by this notion of even dating, of even meeting someone. The idea of putting yourself out there is so exhausting. Once again, it's so daunting. And so a lot of people become sexual anorexic for periods and, and that's shutting down your intimacy. So underneath that umbrella, I just painted for you is fear of intimacy, fear of abandonment, fear of being loved, fear of worthiness, you know, Shame, not enough. Of, yeah. I think a lot of any addiction, truly, it doesn't just have to be the addictions we're talking about any addiction. And I think truthfully, everyone is an addict of something. Yes, everyone has an ism, I say. Everyone Everyone has has an ism. 
everyone goes to something to not feel their feelings, whether it be Netflix or that yep. cookie or shopping yep. or Target. Go. I've been going to Target when you're having a bad day and like, yeah. oh, I just need to pick up some toothpaste and you come out with like $150 worth of shit you don't need. Even if you come out with nothing, you mm-hmm. still went to Target to avoid feeling and something. something. <laughs> this is the number one chapter that I get the most pushback from my book, which is everyone's an addict. And people yeah. are always like, no, not everyone's an addict. And I'm like, absolutely. We are mm-hmm. all avoiding something at some point in our lives. There are feelings yep. we don't want to feel. There are thoughts we don't want to have. And so we just deflect. And I, when I ended my long relationship, I would wander TJ Maxx for hours. Oh my God. I love TJ Maxx. Oh my God. Roxanne in the book loves TJ Maxx. I even talk about TJ Maxx. I love TJ Maxx. I love TJ Maxx and home goods. I swear are just (gasps) potentially more expensive therapy. Yes. (laughs) Probably. Probably at the end of the day. I did not need that new towel, throw towel. I did not need that lamp, but I'm getting it anyway. And what's worse is then they're all around your house and it's just reminders of all the things you avoided. Yeah, because then the high's gone like an hour later once you put it where it's supposed to be and then it's like, oh, that's it. And then it just sort of, after a year or so, it ends up in a goodwill bin. Always. (laughs) Always. So it didn't actually do anything for your life. But under all of that, with the shame, Mm -hmm. you mentioned online you can be called a whore or whatever it is. It's Mm -hmm. people trying to come for you for shame and feelings as well. How do you not let that trigger you? That's the beautiful thing. I just don't anymore. I think with all the work I did internally that, you know, I got to a place because I tell a lot of people, don't tell people you're a sex and love addict. Don't tell them you're in new recovery. But after 10 years, there's this, there was this, that calm that just came over to me where I owned it all. And you can say anything to me. Yes, it might sting for a second, but it doesn't affect who I am on the inside. And I Mm -hmm. used to be so empty that I literally, everything that was said made me either high or very low. And there's something about doing this inner work on yourself where your job can go away, your money can go away, a person can go away, whatever it is. And I'm, I know I'm okay. I feel my feelings of grief now. I don't run from them. I feel the loss. I feel the hurt of someone calling me a whore when I know I'm not a whore. Yep. Um, but you work but, through it. You can yeah. get through it faster. And then I always know it's on them. It's on them. It's their judgment of something in themselves or that they don't understand or even want to understand. And they're lacking empathy and compassion. And that's one thing with this work is like, I have empathy and compassion for anybody struggling because I know what the struggle looks like. I know what the days look like where I don't want to get out of bed. And on the outside, it looked like I had everything. I mean, at the pinnacle of my career, when I was on prom night, there's a picture of me on the red carpet with 40 photographers. You know, I had my first starring role in a movie and I was at my lowest. And so many people say that even outside of this industry, it's going to come across for some people that this is like an entertainment problem, right? No, it is not an entertainment. It's not. And it Mm -hmm. reaches everybody because I feel like you don't hear about sex addiction unless a celebrity puts themselves into sex addiction rehab to get over yeah. some publicity scandal. And exactly. so I just want to make it very clear, this does affect everyone and it can look a lot of different ways. 
But if you know your worth, you know you're okay, you have worked through feelings like this before, you trust yourself, you mm-hmm. will get through anything. Well, here's the thing, and I want to say, you know, I talk about in the book, the first three chapters was Roxanne's flight and downfall. Yeah. <laughs> and the chapter three really goes into me walking into my first meeting. And that was my first meeting. It was 30, you know, 12 years ago, it was 30 people all walks of life. Yeah. There was one A-list celebrity. There was a janitor, a school teacher, a stay-at-home mom, all age groups, 70 to, you have to be 18 or older to come into the meetings. But the, I was the youngest at the time in my late twenties. Now it's like 20 year olds are in there. That's good. I think. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, that's the moment I knew that I had to speak out because 19 year olds, 20 year olds were coming in saying, I can't have a connection. I can't find a relationship. I feel so disconnected from my sexuality. I watch too much porn. Like this is what the young kids are saying this these days. But my point is a banker, a CEO, a janitor, a school teacher, like one of my bestest friends in the program, she's been in just as long as me. And she's a professor. Like it is all walks of life. These meetings, these programs are all over the world. Like I said, you know, I travel and I go to meetings all over the world. And what you said when you're, you're walking a red carpet, or it looks like this is the moment that should be the best moment of your life. And mm-hmm. you're at your lowest. It, it happens that way for a lot of people. People yeah. finally get the job. They finally get the relationship. They get the house, they get the money, they get whatever they've been And they don't feel better. Taking, and that's when you know, when you don't feel better, that's mm-hmm. when you're at your lowest. So just know you probably will be at your lowest when it's the best or supposed to be the best moment of your life. Yeah. Because every moment leading up to that, you're disregarding as, well, I haven't gotten that thing yet. I haven't gotten that thing yet. When I get that. Well, society thing, tells us that. Of course. And they're like, when I get that thing. When I get that new pair better. of shoes, I'll feel better. When I get that relationship, when I get that car, when I get that house, I will feel better. When I get that car, that amount of money in the bank, I will feel better. And it's like, no, you won't. You will actually feel worse. And, and then you're going to seek the next thing. Yeah. And that was a big moment in the book for Roxanne, aka me, in chapter two, where she saw the homeless man on the street in Los Angeles shooting heroin in his arm. And it hit at that moment, like, he is no different than me. I just use men. He's using his drugs out in the open and his outside is matching his inside. His shame is right in front of you. He is showing you Yeah, how broken he is. Yes. Yes. And I was like a mask on top of a mask on top of a mask on this glamorous, you know, perfectionist outside. But inside, I was just as broken as the guy shooting heroin on the, you know, letting my outside world dictate the inside of how I feel about myself. And there's always, it's easy to disregard the current moment and be like, well, when I get that next thing and then Mm -hmm. the next thing doesn't feel so good. And if you keep going from next thing to next thing, you're missing all the wonderful moments. Well, you can't, you can't be present. You're always striving. And that was, that's my big part of my character defect is never being fully present. Always have one foot in the future, one foot in the past and like pissing on the present, you know, that whole thing. And through your work, did you find any moment from your past, any trauma or anything that you can say, oh, this is when it changed? 
I mean, it was just a recipe of disaster for my background, you know, coming from a family that was broken, you know, having parents, not that I'm blaming them at all. They did the best they could, but they had parents that didn't know how to be parents. Their parents didn't have healthy relationships. And when I did my family tree, I saw that alcoholism was like four generations down and every generation after it developed, it became workaholics, overeaters you know, money problems, those kind of things. So, you know, yeah. I came from a parents that were married for a really long time, were miserable in their marriage, didn't sleep in the same bed, never said, I love you, never held hands. And there was sexual trauma that I buried deep that happened when I was six years old that I write about in the book that revealed itself. And yeah, I just think, and when I hit puberty, I felt so already like, something was wrong with me. And I didn't feel like I, I always felt like I fit in, but not enough. And I'm, everybody feels that way, especially when they're younger, but I had dyslexia. I have ADHD. I, I, it was hard for me to learn in school. So I always felt like different, Mm -hmm. but when I hit puberty and I developed, I then saw the power of my female sexuality. And I was like, holy shit, this is the best high in the world. Like, Getting somebody to like you and that feeling, falling in love, is like the best high. It's like better than cocaine. I think the common denominator for a lot of people, especially people with addiction, is that exact story. It's not the broken home story. It's the I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And when I started doing X, I felt, I felt better. I yeah. was accepted. I felt validated. The people mm-hmm. around me were... Uh, validating the things that I didn't, I never, I was treated in a way I was never treated before. I felt like I had a community, all of those things, those tend to be catalysts into, oh, Mm -hmm. I want more of that. Or in order to keep that, I have to keep doing this thing. And, and then you just feed off of it. And yeah. And so recognizing that it's not always the background, but it can be those, those moments of just feeling like you don't belong. Yeah. And as an addict and as someone that comes from a background it's hard living in reality, you know, and as an addict, we hate living in reality. So a lot of my childhood, I lived in fantasy and that's where the love addiction, I was a latchkey kid. I watched movies all the time. I acted out, you know, storylines being somebody else. And it just was just that combination of all those aspects that made me a sex and love addict. We, we do have a recipe somewhere in us all of the time. And it's just reworking that recipe. That's what healing is. Yeah, because I, a lot of sex and love addicts come from happy homes. I have a lot of friends that their parents oh. in the program are still married and they haven't had sexual trauma. It's just yep. their brain developed differently about how love was supposed to look. Society put it on them, all that yes. stuff. So it doesn't matter. You don't have to come from addiction. You don't have to come from trauma or a broken home. You can be a love addict and a sex and love addict and still, you know, have those characteristics that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. I could talk to you about all of this forever, but I want to say if people want to know more about you and more about this story, they should just get your book because it's incredible and Thank you. you'll get to dive in deeper of all the stories and all of the things that you discovered about yourself. But for now, Brianne, can I ask you a few questions? Ooh, yes. You've intrigued me. (laughs) All right. What is one life lesson that you've had to learn over and over again? Uh, Just be. Literally, just be. 
be in this moment exactly how it is and accept it for what it is and stop trying to, you know, that toxic positivity or, you know, striving for the next thing. Just be, just, I have it tattooed on my foot, literally. And when you feel like you're not just being, what gets you back there? Service always being of service to other people. That is my number one thing for keeping my sobriety. Obviously meetings, prayer, not so great at meditation, journaling, <laughs> all that stuff I do. Yeah. But um, the number one thing that gets me out of myself and my ego is turning and helping someone else. Love that. What's one piece of yeah. advice that you wish you had at 18? That you are enough, that you are not broken, that this too shall pass. Yeah. I feel like so many 18 year olds don't know that they're enough because especially now there's so many people telling them that they aren't there's brands selling yeah. them that they aren't there's social media. There's people living fake Filters. lives. Yes, exactly. Your skin is not perfect. Filter it. Yeah. You have that zit that everybody gets when they're going through their hormones of teenage years. Filter it. Honestly, if I would have been raised during this time, I probably would have killed myself. I mean, to be blatantly honest, I don't think I would have survived. I think I would have just not been able to handle it. I think that's why you're seeing more people come into recovery meetings younger and younger, mm -hmm. is that yeah. they're growing up faster. And so they're reaching these points that you reached in your late 20s in their early 20s. And in a lot of ways, yeah. that's good because they're recovering sooner and they get more of their life. But in a lot of ways, you just think how sad it is that they have to come to these terms so quickly. Yeah. Okay. What's one thing about this time in your life right now that you're living that you want to hold on to forever? My son being, <laughs> being almost four years old, he is growing up so fast. I mean, oh, yeah. just the other day I looked at him and I was like, oh my God, you look like a teenager and you're acting like a teenager. But here's <laughs> the thing. I am so present with my child. Like that's the one thing this work has done for me. I am so present as a mother that I have boundaries with my son. I don't ask my son to give me a hug when I'm having a bad day. I allow him to have his feelings. I don't shame him. I have, you know, if I'm working and I need to work, I say, hey, I have 10 minutes please go do something. And then I'll, so it's just like, I get to teach my son those beautiful lessons and hopefully stop the addictive. You know, my husband's an addict too. He's in 33 years of recovery and we get to teach our son how to be a better person in this world and not take, take, take and give, give more. So I think, you know, just stopping the clock and having him just stay for a minute this young because it's just such a beautiful age. How lucky he is to have parents that have gone and done all of this work. I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my husband and I. We have, done the, we have done the work and continue to do the work. Like I said, I'm on a meeting every morning, a meeting every night. I do daily service, all of that. What is one piece of relationship advice you would give? Um, if there's any drama in your relationship, not like working through an issue that needs to be worked through, but if there's a drama, then it's probably not the right relationship. I realized after all this work and working with couples and people, I have a lot of clients that are high profile that, you know, the number one thing is we are addicted to drama with relationships, that passion, that push pull, you gotta, you have to like get the person and like make it work and all that stuff. And it's just a bunch of hogwash. A healthy relationship is literally like this. The problem is so many people think that then it's boring and that something's yeah. wrong. So yeah. Cause we're leave. addicted to the high of it. 
Yeah, they're looking for, I have several friends, one in particular that I'm thinking of now, who just goes for the most dramatic relationships because that's what love looks like to them. Yeah, and that's what they're used to. And that's what they they think is what a relationship should be like. And it is not. And I felt that too. And I also felt, you know, that the sexuality of, you know, that new love, that first times together, first hand, first kiss, first everything, that that was supposed to happen, you know, being together for 17 years. And what I had to learn, that's just the icing on the cake. And it changes that intimacy and sexuality changes over the years. And it's a new way of expressing yourself with your partner. And I didn't know that. So every time that high would wear off and I would start feeling the boredom, Mm -hmm. you know, the coming down from the first love feelings, that's when I, my addict would be like, oh my God, I got to find it again. Where is it? This person's not for me. I have to go like find the next person, the, the actual person I'm supposed to be with. I equate it a lot to when you first move into a house. The first time you see the house, you're like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. I love it so much. I'm picturing picturing all the prospects of where my furniture is going to go and all the rooms and the colors I can paint the wall. And then after you've been there a little bit, it's the shiny brand new parts of it wear off. But what takes its place is the comfort, the Mm -hmm. feeling of home, the the ability to be yourself there. And then yes, things will change over time. You will put in work, you will update things just like you do in a relationship. Yeah. But the shiny brand new can never come back because it was replaced by something better. It was replaced by home. It's replaced by the comfort of settling into the work. Yeah. And I was always scared of that. You know, I was scared of that level of intimacy. When I started loving somebody, my sexuality would shut down because it was too much intimacy. So it's like leaning into that uncomfortability, still having my connection and loving the person. Absolutely. Okay. Is there a relationship in your life you wish was stronger? I mean, I've talked about it before and it's a lot in the book, you know, chapter five, six, and seven in the book is the character defects, looking back at the why and, you know, the compare and despair aspect that I always deal with. And the main thing I've talked about a lot is my relationship with my father. It's been, you know, we were very emotionally, it's called emotional incest when a parent makes their child their partner, not in a sexual way, but in an emotional way where the energy from the child is going to the parent instead of the parent to the child. Every parent should read about emotional incest because I feel like it's plaguing our society. But the point is I had to cut that tie. You know, people say it's like cutting the umbilical cord with your mother, becoming an adult, adulting up, having boundaries. And that was really hard to do. My, my father and I stopped talking for a year and a half and we had to really work on our boundaries together and him respecting me as a a grown adult. Um, But that's been tough, you know, and there's moments where you're like, oh, that person is changing. And then two minutes later, they like knock you with a comment. And it's like, I wish that didn't happen, but I can't keep him in that box anymore. And I have to allow him to be who he is and just don't go to a well when there's not water. Don't go to the hardware store looking for milk. So I know that that relationship isn't ever going to give me what I need. So I don't need to keep going to it and then getting disappointed. So I wish it was different, but it's better now than it's ever been. So I, I'm, 
grateful for that growth, right? Yeah. And I think it's a lot of what you've talked about previously, which is you did the work so that the words and the hurtful comments and things don't sting so hard. Yeah. You're able to work through them. And that's for all relationships, even the ones that are closest to you where those words do sting a little harder. Honestly, it's, it's almost impossible to read your book without seeing a little bit of yourself or a little bit of people that you know I and know. go, oh, there is work to be done here. <laughs> I gave the whole aspect of what a sex and love addict could look like. And anybody can pick up that book and go, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, I felt that way. Oh, I said yes when I actually meant no. Oh, I put myself in that position where I actually did harm to myself and self-abuse. So the lesson is that it's never too late. You didn't miss the opportunity to heal. No. I think that's where we should leave it, honestly. Oh, I love will it. You tell, <laughs> will you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find the book? Yeah. So please, if anything I said resonated, reach out to me on Instagram. I try to answer all my DMs. It's at the Brianne Davis. If you need inf- information on meetings or anything, just reach out. The book is at secretlifenovel.com. You can get signed copies or you can go to Amazon and Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. The podcast is Secret Life Podcast. Yeah, and we tell other people's secrets. We're on episode 88, and it's just like the best thing I've ever done is giving other people the chance to let go of their shame and their secrets. And if they're going through it still or where, you know, if it was a past secret. So I'm just really proud of our podcast. Yes, everybody go check that out. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I want to thank Brianne so much for joining me on this really cool episode today. And I also want to remind anybody that if you think you may be struggling with any form of addiction, to please reach out for help, go to a meeting, reach out to your community. And if love and sex addiction does sound like something that you may need assistance with, Brianne is always there to help. You can, like she said, message her on Instagram. And I've also put the website for her book, which has contact info, in the show notes. So thank you, everybody. I love that you joined me for this episode and keep coming back. That's all for today's episode. Check back in next week to talk a little more shit with me. In the meantime, be sure to grab your copy of Shit Adults Never Taught Us on Amazon and Barnes & Noble to learn all the shit adults never taught us. And in case no one told you this week, you're killing it. So keep going, you genuine badass.